the month of January, we are uh, spending four weeks looking at the four core values of this church, the gospel, humility, unity, and generosity, otherwise known as G-Hug. Thank you, G-Hug. Yeah, you're going to be saying G-Hug eventually, and, and you're going to like that. We want to be rooted in the gospel, growing in humility, pursuing unity, living in generosity. And so for the month of January, we're studying the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Colossians. It's conveniently four chapters long, and there's four values. And what we're doing is we're looking one chapter at a time at each chapter and looking for the particular value of the week. So last week, we looked at Colossians 1 and talked about being rooted in the gospel. Today, we're going to look at Colossians 2 and think about what this says about growing in humility. So let's turn our attention to the second chapter of the letter to the Colossians. Paul writes, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea and for those who have not met me face to face. My goal is that their hearts, having been knit together in love, may be encouraged, and that they may have all the riches that assurance brings in their understanding of the knowledge of the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will deceive you through arguments that sound reasonable. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your morale and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, and firm in your faith just as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Be careful not to allow anyone to captivate you through an empty, deceitful philosophy that is according to human traditions and the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form, and you have been filled in him, who is the head over every ruler and authority. In him, you also were circumcised, not, however, with the circumcision performed by human hands, but by the removal of the fleshly body, that is, through the circumcision done by Christ." Having been buried with him in baptism, you also have been buried with him from the dead. And even though, I'm sorry, you, you also have been raised with him from the dead. And even though you were dead in your transgresses, transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he nevertheless made you alive with him, having forgiven all your transgressions. He has destroyed what was against us, a certificate of indebtedness expressed in decrees opposed to us. He has taken it away by nailing it to the cross, disarming the rulers and authorities. He has made a public disgrace of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you with respect to food or drink or in the matter of a feast, new moon or Sabbath days. These are only the shadow of the things to come, but the reality is Christ. Let no one who delights in false humility and the worship of angels pass judgment on you. That person goes on at great lengths about what he has supposedly seen, but he is puffed up with empty notions by his fleshly mind. He is not held fast to the head from whom the whole body, supported and knit together through its ligaments and sinews, grows with a growth that is from God. 
if you have died with Christ to the elemental spirits of the world, why do you still submit to them as though you lived in the world? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use, founded as they are on human commands and teachings. Even though they have the appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship and humility achieved by an unsparing treatment of the body, a wisdom with no true value, they are in reality, they in reality result in fleshly indulgence. This is the word of the Lord. Father, in this moment of silence, would you speak to us about your word? Father, we want to be rooted and founded and built up in Christ. Lord, we want to grow out of him. We want to be overflowing with the wisdom that comes from the knowledge of God. We want to walk in the way of Jesus, who though he was God, took on flesh and emptied himself on our behalf. Lord, teach us today through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, well, sorry, I tripped on the reading a few times, and part of that is as, we, as I was reading, you know, my brain was firing with, there is so much complex theology in this chapter, and I'm, you know, I'm thinking about, oh, I didn't, I didn't write a lot of explanations of that into my sermon, because we're focusing on what this has to say to us about humility. So we could have a lot more discussion about Colossians 2 and, and particularly the, um, the other teaching, whatever it was that Paul was combating. You know, he calls it empty and deceptive philosophies and he talks about the rules these other people have and, and you know, and, and um, it's, uh, he, he has a lot to say about that and, and even still, we're not really sure what this other teaching was. We'll come back to that. But what we're looking at is humility. And here's the thing about humility. Humility is slippery. The more you try to grab hold of humility, the more it will slip through your fingers. Humility is one of those strange things that you cannot hit by aiming at it. Right? It's kind of like friendship. If you're, if you're just desperate for a friend, people aren't going to like you. <laughs> right? And that's, that's the reality. The, the more desperate you are for, for friendship, the same way with humility. If you're aiming at humility, you are likely to miss. In fact, aiming at it almost certainly guarantees that you will hit something else. Paul calls this something else twice in this chapter, false humility. And there are actually two sides of false humility. That's what I want to look at first. Um, these two sides of false humility have more recognizable names, and I'll, I'll reveal them at the end of my explanation, but, but for now I want to call them humility as achievement and humility as despair. Humility as achievement and humility as despair. But then we'll look at the third kind of humility. Humility as achievement. Okay, you know the corny jokes, right? You, you know the corny jokes. Uh, I'm the most humble person I know. Um, you know, I, Dave Rhodes said this in Bible study a few weeks back, uh, some joke about, my church gave me a badge for being the most humble, but then took it away when I was wearing it, you know. Um, 
we, you know, we look at uh, the Bible, uh, the, the first five books, the Pentateuch, you know, the tradition is that Moses wrote those, but the fifth book, uh, Deuteronomy, has this statement that Moses was the most humble man on earth. And so then people wonder, could Moses have possibly written that statement? And, and all of these jokes and ideas are based on a definition of humility that is thinking lowly of oneself. You know, thinking, you know, having, having a realistic and, you know, bad opinion of yourself, a low opinion of yourself. They all have a fear behind them. Like, well, I, I want to be humble, but I, I would know that I would be disqualified as soon as I think that I'm humble. And that's, that's messy. Um, humility as achievement has us in that weird tension. And, and Christianity and Judaism and, and frankly, many other religions and philosophies view um, self-restraint, which is a key part of humility. They view that as a commendable spiritual achievement. And so the more someone practices self-restraint, the more uh, acclaim they get. If you look at the third century, there's, you know, there's these people who were going out into the wilderness, out into the desert. We call them the desert mothers and the desert fathers. And they would go out and they would fast for, you know, weeks at a time and, and you know, live on hardly anything. And, and they had basically forsaken all of the comforts of the world. They're living in, in austere circumstances and, and and people would go out in mass to hear what they had to say. They were drawn to these people. So, so that act of self-restraint, it led to some, some popularity, some acclaim. You, you maybe know people who have um, the opportunity to have more comfort than what they have, but they have chosen not to. They have chosen to restrain themselves, and you probably admire those people. It's ironic that re respect, renown, even fame can be the results of radical acts of self-restraint, self-discipline, and public humility. Uh, more ironically, uh, self-restraint can lead somebody to very high self-regard. You know, if you're doing well with it, you kind of feel it. I'm doing well with this. Um, you know, Jesus tells this story, it's a, it's a parable, and everyone would think this person looks ridiculous, but of the, the Pharisee and the tax collector praying in the temple, and, you know, the, here's what the Pharisee prays. He says, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, extortionists, unrighteous people, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. He sounds so foolish that we hardly pause long enough to realize all the ways that we are exactly like him. Proud of ourselves when we're doing well. Paul uh, closes the chapter that, that we just read, Colossians 2, with a curious statement about the people who are following all the rules. He lists off these generic rules. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And, and he makes this statement. He says, these things in reality result in fleshly indulgence. Whatever was happening in Colossae, it's clear that there was a growing culture of spiritual one-upmanship, spiritual ranking. You know, we, the people knew who the more spiritual people 
were, and that was being imposed on the Christian community, starting to rank one another. In fact, this is a risk for any time any group of people get together. Uh, Jesus goes on the same track in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, if you practice your spiritual disciplines so that you can be seen by others, you have received your reward. Being seen is the reward. That's fleshly indulgence. That's what Paul is talking about. It's the same thing. Um, In high school and college, I was involved in this church, uh, in the early days of this church. I obviously was a teenager. I was uh, both in high school and college. I was part of different volunteer groups, that, you know, kind of the, the youth group leadership team and, uh, and then kind of the volunteer youth staff during college. And one of my favorite things about that is we got to go on uh, annual leaders retreats. And leaders retreats were, you know, were so much fun for me. Uh, we would, it was this combination of, you know, watching movies and playing games and, and you know, soaking in the hot tub or whatever kind of fun stuff, you know, with, you know, deep, long, late night conversations and, and, uh, and times of prayer and, and uh, times of uh, planning for what we would do in youth ministry. And it was this wonderful time. And what I loved about it is it was like two nights, you know, three days, two nights. And that was long enough to keep the act, that was short enough to keep the act up the whole time. I could wake up early and have my Bible and journal out before anyone else woke up and I could sit myself in a prominent place so that they could see me praying. I could, I could jump up and do the dishes right away after every meal. I mean, if you went and asked my mom how quickly I was jumping up to do the dishes after any meal, she would say, Mike does the dishes after meals sometimes? Like, it was completely different than my other life. But in that community, I, was, I wanted to be seen as incredibly spiritual. And there was sort of accolades that came from that. I found myself, you know, here I am. I'm the pastor of that church now. I mean, my gosh, it worked. Oh, it's a terrible, terrible illustration. Oh. Friends, more than riches in that time, my heart was shaped to long for religious glory, respect, invitations to leadership teams, people seeking me out uh, for advice, and I sure wanted the youth group girls to like me. Um, all of that was part of it. God used it despite, despite those motives. Um, God used some of that to cause me to love his word and pursue uh, ministry, and I'm grateful for that. But in, in large part... That was fleshly indulgence. That was what Paul is talking about here. We don't know what the Colossian heresy was, what this other teaching was that concerned Paul. And that's a gift because it could be anything. It could be anything. I'm so glad we don't know what it was because because all these sets of rules were just giving people ways to be better than one another. In the last year, uh, Aaron and I uh, started following this Uh, teaching this group called Practicing the Way, and they're teaching old spiritual disciplines, fasting, Sabbath, prayer, etc. And and I'm so grateful uh, that, you know, in the the teachings about this, they'll say regularly, we we are not doing this so that you become somebody who fasts a lot and are proud of being someone who fasts a lot. We're doing this so that you can become somebody who loves. That's the goal. 
that out of these disciplines, you would become a person of love. That's, I think, what we're after. But how do we get there? Well, we'll get to how in just a few minutes. So what's the common word for for humility as achievement? You already know it. Uh, Pride. That's the common word for humility as achievement. Now, let's talk about the next thing, humility as despair. This is the flip side of humility as achievement, the other side of the coin, maybe the equal and opposite reaction, maybe just the reality that's underneath all attempt at achievement in terms of humility. I'm talking about humiliation. I'm talking about despair. Paul says, don't let anyone judge you. And and that's a pastoral gift that, you know, he's saying, if you enter into this way of thinking, you are hanging around your neck the desperate need to impress everyone around you. Your, your perception of the super spiritual person only shows you that you are bad at the super spiritual things. You can't quite pull yourself away from your own creature comforts. You have lots of reasons why you don't want to fast. Because it stinks. <laughs> It does. Uh, you, you, you know Bible reading is important. You hear Stephen talk about the, the two-year Bible plan, and you just think about how far behind you are and how boring it is when you try to do it or how confusing it is. You hear about people talking about long times of prayer, and you think, what do you have to talk about for that long? Um, when humility becomes an achievement for a few, it is also a failure for most. I was thinking about this in terms of a, a novel I like. It's a, it's a novel by a, an atheistic, like anti-Christian author named Ayn Rand. Maybe you've heard of her. The, this novel is called The Fountainhead. It's uh, the novel that kind of put her and her philosophy on the map. The main character is this guy named Howard Rourke, and he's this genius architect, and, and he is Rand's... Uh, picture of what the perfect man is you know he's he's totally self you know uh settled he's he doesn't look for anyone to you know tell him who he is it's just inside himself he's this uh you know he's he's not a christ figure in the book uh she wouldn't write a christ figure in but at his best he's awfully christ-like in his best moments this character is uh you know he's creative he's original thinking and and his, the utter opposite of him in the book, the villain in the book, is this, um, this critic, this, this guy who writes for the newspapers and is a public speaker. His name is Ellsworth Tui. Ellsworth Tui. And Tui has gained prominence by being the critic. He trumpets the cause of the common man, and he publishes books and articles that tear down anyone who does anything exemplary. He just wants it all to be average all the time. People adore Tui. They trip over themselves to get into Tui's good graces. And because Rourke is so brilliant, Tui makes it his personal mission to just destroy him, to destroy his career. And that's where a lot of the drama 
of the book comes. And so after Tui has been in his mind successful, he's, he's had Rourke build this building and then he's made, turned the masses against this building. We find the two of them standing across the street next to each other. They, they usually don't interact, but they're standing across the street next to each other and they're watching the building and it's been, it's been walled off and the, you know, there's pe- people hate it. They throw things at it, all of this stuff. And in this moment, we discover what's really happening for Tui, who seems like someone who's achieved humility, who has humility as achievement. Here's what he says. He says, Mr. Rourke, we're alone here. Why don't you tell me what you think of me? In any words you wish, no one will hear us. And Rourke's response is just devastating. But I don't think of you. That's it. That's the end of the chapter. And in this moment, we learn that Tui, for all his posturing, is actually in despair. His entire well-being depends on what other people think of him. Paul says it to the Colossians, don't let anyone judge you. Well, Tui was letting everyone judge him and controlling their judgments. You know... (laughs) But Rourke, he doesn't care. He doesn't care, and that crushes Tui. If the more recognizable word for humility as achievement is pride, the word you all know for humility as despair is pity. Now, in this moment, I can do no better than those of you who've got, you know lived in church culture for a long time. I can do no better than underline and highlight what your children's pastor and youth pastor and previous pastors have said to you, and that's pride and pity are both uh, uh, just desperately self-focused. They're the same thing. They're self-obsession. The human heart who pursues pride and lives in pride will swing easily and regularly to pity. It's a game no one wins. Like Tui, those who reach the top of humility as achievement uh, must turn to not-so-humble tactics to keep anyone uh, away from taking their privileged place away from them. They must ultimately live a lie. You don't gain humility by going after it, and if you gain the humility that you're going after, it's tenuous. You're scared of somebody taking it away. Plus, no one will like you. (laughs) That's just real. The book of James calls us to humble ourselves. Humility is celebrated throughout Christian history as a great virtue. So if you don't get it by pursuing it, how can you humble yourself? What do we do? Here's where Colossians 2 is an absolute treasure to us. And this is what true humility looks like. Humility is actually an expression of gratitude. This is what true humility is. I want to take a surprising doorway to get into this thinking about humility, and it's this verse I've made reference to a couple times. Verse 16, which opens with this line, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you. After all, someone following this guidance uh, to the letter might walk around with a, with a pretty sensitive judgment meter. If you, wanted to, if you wanted to obey this, don't let anyone judge you, um, you might come across kind of poorly to other people. 
You might sound like the sort of cultural stereotype of the angry teenager saying, you can't judge me, you know, all the time. The moment of judgment is a great test of humility. It's a litmus test for what sort of humility you have. If your sense of humility and your sense of self is caught between the poles of achievement and despair, this command, don't let anyone judge you, is impossible to follow. Because if your humility is an achievement, then you are letting everyone judge you, and you're basking in it, and you need it. You cannot not let people judge you. If your sense of self and your sense of humility is based on your achievements, you are letting everyone judge you. Sure, some judgments may be more important to you than others. I mean, Anne Rand's, her, this you know, atheistic author, her whole thing was that the only person who can judge you is you, you yourself. Well, if you go there, then you're still letting someone judge you, you. <laughs> you're still stuck in that cycle. And I would ask, by what standard you're arriving at your judgment, you'll find that there's other people in the wings of your mind helping you pass judgment. Paul says not to let anyone judge you, perhaps especially including yourself. Friends, we cannot apply this wonderful prohibition by running around telling people not to judge us. I know that's obvious. It's worth noting that anyone tells you Uh, that you can't judge them is passing a judgment on you in that moment, saying, you're not qualified to judge me. Oh, who says? You know, interesting. And of course, if somebody tells you that they can't judge you, the automatic result is that you're going to judge them more harshly. Um, So it all falls apart in the end. Paul says, therefore, don't let anyone judge you. From what does this guidance result? Why does he say, Therefore, let's go just a few sentences backward. Maybe to verse 13. I've got it here. Um, so, okay. Uh, sorry, I'm, I'm quite a ways back. I'm, I haven't told you when to hit slides. But this is verse 13. It says, And even though you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he nevertheless made you alive with him, having forgiven all your transgressions. He has destroyed what was against us, a certificate of indebtedness expressed in decrees opposed to us. He has taken it away by nailing it to the cross, disarming the rulers and authorities. He has made a public disgrace over them, triumphing over them on the cross. Why can we not let any, why are we free to not let anyone judge us? Friends, here it is. The judgment has already been rendered. If we believe the story that Paul is saying about Jesus, we find ourselves saying, I have already been judged in Christ. I have already been measured by the Father in Christ, and so no other judgment matters. You know, why why is don't let anyone judge you the next step? Because God has, even though we were dead in our indebtedness in sin, God has judged us in Christ. We have died with him and raised with him. And that is our freedom from all of the other judgment. Buried with him and raised with him. 
Friends, if we go back to the beginning of this section, we would find the incredible daily reminder that has the power to set us free from this carousel of achievement and despair. I read it last week. I'll read it again today. Therefore, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, and firm in your faith, just as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Why is Thanksgiving the way to true humility? Because as we live in gratitude for what God has done for us, judging us in Christ, we are set free from all the other measures that we would impose or someone else would impose on ourselves. Friends, we grow in humility, not by pursuing humility, but by practicing thankfulness for what God has done for us in Christ. That's how we grow in it. We, we don't use the word pursue with humility. We are not pursuing humility. We're growing in it by being rooted in the gospel. And when I do that, my identity is liberated from my work. I no longer look to my own spiritual discipline, my intellect, my achievements, my, my physical stature, my friends, my possessions, or anything else to tell me who I am, or how good I am, or how worthy I am, or how lovable I am, I can simply say, Father, thank you for judging me in your son.